Join us on Facebook Live. That's where Marsh is hanging out. Find us at the Bruise page, and uh, there he is lurking in the corner. All right, then. All right, then. Hello. Hello, back. Hello, back. This is the Hi. real one. How that, are was, you? that was just the audio test, you see. That's the thing. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. There you go. Happy I mean, Groundhog I think we're Day. a bit early. Happy Groundhog Day. We're a bit Day. early. Happy Groundhog Day. Well, there you go. You, you should Happy be Groundhog playing uh, Sonny and Cher all morning, shouldn't you? Happy Groundhog Day. Right. We've got some interesting bits and pieces to get into today, which he's just mentioned. So, mm. any good goss, first of all, really? Oh, and join us on the Brews Facebook page, yada, yada, blah. <clears throat> uh, it doesn't seem to be too much going on. I mean, we're kind of sort of be between major awards ceremonies at the moment, so that hasn't uh, progressed at all. Uh, but there is, uh, you know, plenty to be getting on with, plenty to keep us uh, to keep us going. Absolutely, it's getting the fewer and fewer ones that we actually have to go to the cinema and watch. But I guess that's just the way of the world these days. <laughs> it, that is true, and and that is somewhat ironic this week because the big movie out this week in cinemas is an Apple movie. Ooh. But they seem to be doing, as we have seen already recently with Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon, mm. both of which were Apple movies as well. Uh, they are experimenting with, you know, a cinematic theatrical window ahead of just dumping it on their platform. Uh, cool. And now is that confusing people? Because you know, finally we've got, you know, I don't you've, think you've got people treating Netflix and Apple and all these kind of things like the real deal even mm. though people watch it on their screens, and now they're saying, well, i tell you what, we'll take it back to the cinema. That really confused people. It is. I mean, it is, it is kind of sending a mixed message because you're right. Yeah, a lot of these streaming platforms have been struggling to garner any kind of sort of respect in the marketplace, but they have sort of clawed their way up there in, in recent years. Mm. I think Apple basically... Um, Remember, Apple is the only streaming service to date that has won Best Picture at the Oscars for Coda <laughs> yeah. two years ago. So I think that kind of gave them a taste. They were like, oh, okay, we can create movies with pedigree, but those movies do still need a theatrical engagement in order to qualify and be eligible for uh, Oscars, etc. Uh, so that's definitely why you saw Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon both get cinema releases ahead of time. Uh, and they did an exclusive deal with Paramount Pictures to distribute those theatrically uh, beforehand because they don't have that infrastructure. Uh, there was talk a while ago about Netflix buying cinemas mm. uh, in the US so that they could sort of do their own, organise their own uh, theatrical uh, engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, they, I don't think they have managed to get that off the ground, but then some of their titles... Again, recently, Maestro, The Killer, etc., have also been released theatrically, though not here. So whatever arrangement they have with a theatrical partner, it's purely in North America. There is, well, they'll put it this way, there is nobody in Hong Kong who has struck up that deal. So if you are listening, local distributors, I'm sure there is a sweet deal to be made with Netflix to, uh, to get that kind of uh, theatrical window out there. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Maestro uh, on the big screen, for mm. example. Uh, suffice to say that Apple has, you know, is doing it. They're not doing it with everything, uh, but they are doing it with what they see as the big ticket items. And we have one of those this week with Argyle, Yeehaw. Uh, which is uh, the new Matthew Vaughan movie. So we will get to that one a little bit later after the news. I wanted to start off talking about True Detective, mm. uh, the fourth season of the HBO show, highly acclaimed, uh, kicked off about 
three weeks ago, there are now three episodes available right. on HBO. And so I, so we're halfway through. It's only going to be a six-episode season. Uh, but I thought now would be a good time to talk about it. You know, people who are interested may have had a chance to, uh, you know, get started with it. Now, it's an interesting uh, series, True Detective, because every season is a completely self-contained uh, story. In a, in a different setting with different <laughs> characters. So there is no follow along, which, which is great for someone like me, uh, who doesn't watch as much TV as perhaps he should. So, cause you can just kind of jump in. If you hear like the new season is good. Yeah. You don't have to be like, Oh, but it's season four. Do I really need to go back to the beginning? Absolutely not. That won't help you at all. They're all completely separate. How many apps are there in each? Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly the same. They tend to be sh on the shorter side, but season four that we are in the middle of right now is six episodes, and I think episode four drops this weekend. So it'll be Monday morning for us. But it's in that primetime slot. You know, it's in that kind of Game of Thrones succession uh, kind of slot there. So obviously HBO thinks that they're onto something good. Uh, this one is uh, a little bit unique in that it has a subtitle. Otherwise, they've just been called True Detective. This is called True Detective colon Night Country and is all mm. set up in Alaska during Christmas week. So it's basically, you know, day, day for 30 days of night kind of territory. And um, there is no sunshine. And it is perpetual darkness, which obviously gets everybody a bit antsy at the best of times. Uh, the people who have chosen to live there, you know, seem to be of a, of a certain sort of morose uh, <laughs> disposition, shall we say, that, that only is accentuated at this time of year. In the middle of all of this, we have Jodie Foster. Now, is, is the lead here playing a uh, sort of curmudgeonly uh, local sheriff? And uh, she has described the character as a uh, an Alaskan Karen, and uh, brilliant. <laughs> she's just an awful character, she says. And uh, yeah, she's obviously got uh, you know she's very uh, unpopular locally around the community. She's obviously been there for a long time, but she's burned a lot of bridges. She's made more enemies than friends. She lives a fairly solitary existence. Um, and she has something of a shady past. There are skeletons in her closet. There is trauma there uh, that is slowly... Once again, there has to be, doesn't there? I'm mean, just thinking, of you're course. talking about this part of the world and it's always dark and a certain kind of person lives... Well, they probably don't. They're probably just normal people who go shopping, but it's a bit dark. But no, they have to be. Well, it's a combination. It's a combination of the two, isn't it? I mean, I think that that type of uh, climb, shall we say, attracts a certain kind of person. But at the same time, I think it turns people a certain way. So, you know, you are either like that already or it has made you that way. Suffice to say that, yes, you know, there is. a. a OK, so what the what the drama boils down to essentially is there is a, a research station out in the uh, in the Arctic tundra, uh, populated by about uh, a dozen male researchers, uh, who all suddenly go missing at the same time, and that is the big kind of uh, mystery of of the first episode: is where have they all gone? What has happened? And and the only trace of anything is uh, a severed female tongue found yeah. on on the floor. I mean? It would be an old can yeah. of Coke or something in real life, wouldn't it? Right. And the mystery only gets deeper and deeper when, at the end of episode one, the bodies... Of, I think it's eight, actually. I think it's eight scientists. The bodies of all eight scientists are discovered together, naked, huddled into a group, and yet contorted into, uh, you know, 
sort of Edvard Munch levels of shriekness, um, <laughs> shriekness in just one great, one great big contorted kind of mass of flesh frozen in the middle of the ice. So it's like, what on earth has happened here? You know, what has killed these people? What has driven them outside in the in the dead of winter, naked? And to clearly, sort of, it looks like they have been scared to death, quite literally. But all together, all like huddled in a mass, it's quite the mystery. Uh, um, sounds good, though. Uh, it is. I mean, I can actually put my hand up and say I've seen all of it. So I've got, I'm kind of treading on eggshells a little bit because I, I actually watched it all a couple of weeks ago as well. So I'm trying hey. to kind of remember what is in those episodes. And what Let me say hi to Scott. My goodness, he's joined us on Facebook Live. He said it's all filmed in Iceland, though, interestingly enough. Actually, it was both. Oh, some here we go. Here we go. <laughs> some was filmed Mr. in Pedantic. Hey, well, you know, if you're going to start a fight, then, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, yes, um, a, a proportion of it certainly was filmed in Iceland. You know, I think HBO has a, has obviously has a bit of infrastructure there, left over from Game of Thrones, probably. And uh, you know, it's just become a popular place to shoot stuff oh, in recent years. Maybe there are wonderful tax incentives or things like that. Uh, you know, certainly spectacular landscapes. Things like Prometheus and uh, Oblivion and movies like that are all shot up there. And they look rather good. Um, I need to actually shout out to another couple of people. I mean, a lot of the... No, no, don't get... Don't get all your feathers ruffled by this. But one of the Me? things that's interesting about the show, yeah, one of the sh things that's interesting about this particular uh, storyline is that uh, many of the um, of the main characters are female. So you know, so so Jodie Foster is is the lead, and then Webs. her Why would partner. They Gone. Well, sometimes you 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 know you you try and poke the bear a little bit and poke the woke. And provoke some <laughs> provoke some wokeness exactly yeah provoke the woke <laughs> <laughs> that was good for you poke the woke yeah um so her 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 partner is a an indigenous uh, uh, trooper called Navarro played by Callie Race now I didn't know who Callie Race was I looked her up and she's actually a two time world champion boxer. Uh, who has turned to acting, and she's rather good. Actually, she is quite makes quite the sort of the striking impression. The great British actress Fiona Shaw is mm -hmm. in this as like sort of the the creepy weird old lady who lives on her own out on the edge of town, mm. and um, and then Isabella Starla Blanc, who is also of uh, sort of First Nations uh, ancestry, plays uh, Jodie Foster. And look to your daughter. left. Can you just stop for a second? Look to your left. There's a button. And that is the MP button. That's the Marshy Pause button because it's nearly time for the news. So I think we better do that. I'm going to cover you up, go for a cup of tea. Don't forget what you were talking about. Like, that's likely to happen. And we will be back in a short few minutes, really. Warm and sunny. RTHK Radio And before you say anything, Marshy, I didn't nearly forget the news because I was so engrossed in what you were saying. Nope, no, never going to happen. Anyway, carry on. Gosh, I'm, I'm flattered. Um, so basically what you've got is you've got this tight-knit community, but it's also a very divisive community. You've got the uh, the indigenous population, sort of Inuits. Um, I, I'm not sure of all the correct jargon, but suffice to say, yeah, sort of na native communities who are, you know, have long-held um, tensions with, shall we say, the... Um, the the invading white communities, the particularly weirdos. because there is sort of 
Well, there is a, there is sort of a grand scale sort of um, big commercial mining operation going on uh, on the outs on the outskirts of town, which obviously employs a lot of people. But at the same time, it's on land that would be, best be you protected the, the Inuits rather it was protected and what have you. So there is there is a lot of sort of tension going on in the town. And so when this thing happens at a research station and all these men sort of disappear, they're found in the ice, and then we discover and see in episode two. Not only are they all found in this very strange situation out in the ice, but at least one of them is not dead yet, even though he's kind of frozen solid. So there's, it's, it's weird. And one of the great things that's about sort of true detective is on the one hand, you know, it, it uh, assumes the identity of a fairly sort of standard police procedural show. It does. Or it did. But it, ta- but it <laughs> taps in, but it taps into some far more sort of primal, uh, slightly, weirder more supernatural folk horror elements there's always something ever so slightly unsettling under the surface which is you know which is sort of acknowledges the the forces of the natural world or the unexplainable in a way not not like the x-files does but more in a way that sort of ley lines and corn circles and just you know, respect for the the the, uh, the the power of Mother Nature, if you like, is is attuned to those kind of things in interesting ways. Yeah. I think. Um, cannot leave this one without giving uh, a massive shout out to the director and writer showrunner of this series, Isa Lopez, uh, Mexican director who I've met actually a couple of times, and she's lovely and very talented and great. And she has been handed this entire season mm. to sort of to develop and and create exactly how she wants to. She's an incredibly accomplished horror filmmaker, and it's fantastic to see her sort of get such a, a big job as this. So uh, I can say with some confidence, uh, it's really good. Uh, it obviously owes a great debt. It wears its horror influences on its sleeves. Owes a, owes a great mm-hmm. debt to things like the John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, and obviously, it, it it more than acknowledges the fact that Jodie Foster was so awesome in Silence of the Lambs. You know, here she is again investigating strange series of grisly murders. Uh, She's got quite good at it, yeah, though, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah. You know, and when you you can't help but as you as you watch her sort of work a crime scene, be like, okay, yeah, uh, you know, there are certain echoes of Silence of the Lambs in here, and they are duly acknowledged and embraced wholeheartedly, and all the rest of it. The cast is great. Uh, in addition to all of those fantastic female performers that I've mentioned, um, they are not alone. Uh, Finn Bennett plays uh, her young deputy. He's rather good. Uh, John Hawkes is always excellent and the brilliant christopher eccleston it took me like half an episode to even recognize it was him he kind of sort of appears i think in like the second or third episode yeah totally totally unrecognizable uh as like jodie foster's superior from uh from head office if you like who comes down and uh he's he's quite brilliant quite unlikable uh in all the best ways possible so that is great and it's true detective night country aka season four and it is, uh, it's on HBO. I can so, see a fight brewing so whatever, here because Scott came back to us on Facebook Live and wrote okay. a few bits and pieces. I'll let you sort that one out later in the changing room. Uh, well, the information I have is that it was shot in both places. So that's that's all I have. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Any more than that. Next. If you know more than that, then, then you can have it. All right. Good. 
See. I'm, I'm not here to make trouble. Uh, okay, let's talk about Argyle, which is the big new movie from Matthew Vaughan. Obviously, Matthew Vaughan cut his teeth as Guy Ritchie's producer back in the day, before then turning to directing himself. Um, he has done... Can I throw in a tiny bit of triv before we get into this? <clears throat> because I don't want to interrupt you when you're on the sure. flow. Um, yes, you do. I was reading some stuff yesterday that um, Brad mm. Pitt, talking about Guy Ritchie, Brad Pitt is the pikey. Some people reckon that's possibly the best role he's ever had. I mean, that's a bit of a stretch, but what do you reckon? Uh, he, he is brilliant, isn't he? He's no doubt about it. phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all yours. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's obviously it's a, it's a choice, but it's, uh, I think he's great. It's, one, it's certainly one of his most memorable roles, and I know how many people do like that movie. And but they he's love done some incredible so, stuff, yeah, but people are saying that's him at his best. I mean, it's <laughs> worth thinking about, isn't it? It is, and it's so unlike so much of the other stuff that he's done that I think it really stands out all the more. Brilliant. So. All right. Then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fair, fair enough. All right, yeah, Matthew Vaughan. So, yes, after after he split with Guy Ritchie, uh, he did uh, X-Men First Class, he did Kick-Ass, and obviously he did um, the Kingsman movies, which I know you are a particular fan of. And Argyle is probably closest in tone to them. Basically, it, it stars uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, that people have seen in Jurassic World, daughter of Ron Howard. Um, as Ellie Conway, who is a successful novelist who has written a series of spy novels mm -hmm. about a James Bond-type, Ethan Hunt-type character um, called Argyle. And uh, she becomes the target of a sinister underworld plot when it is sort of noticed and acknowledged that the plots of her novels skew far too close to reality that they think that she might have some kind of... Uh, prescient skill set that she might almost be able to predict what's happening and that the un, you know the the international espionage crisis at the heart of her latest novel is in full swing when she is swept off her feet uh by sam rockwell who claims to be sort of the real world version of the the uh, spy from her books and saves her life uh, and finds uh, her whisked off to Europe where you know all that kind of big budget spy jinx ensue uh this is as sort of big and crass and loud and colorful and chaotic as we would expect from the man who brought us the kingsman movies uh but sort of even more so uh not least because at the center of this you have this sort of unlikely action heroine in the uh in the image of bryce dallas howard uh he has packed his the you know the supporting cast with uh, you know a smorgasbord of talent. Brian Cranston uh -huh. uh, plays the villain. Hello, good. Uh, you, yeah, you've got um, Catherine O'Hara as uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's mother. Uh, you've got Dua Lipa pops up. Richard E. Grant pops up in a brief cameos all over it. And because you've got this kind of playing with reality, where in all of these situations she almost becomes. Um, Sort of Argyle the spy almost becomes like her her conscience, uh, her sort of subconscious guide through this underworld as she realizes that she has to tap into some kind of understanding and athleticism, uh, you know, and intuition about 
you know, about the world of international espionage that up until this point uh, she's only been writing about. She does her research, but other than that, she believes that she's completely unfamiliar with. Uh, it, it kind of sort of switches back and forth between what is happening in reality and what was happening in this kind of imagined, fantasized Argyle version of events. Right. Uh, and the film does a good job of jumping back and forth while deliberately and very self-consciously uh, playing with your uh, preconceptions about what that means and what exactly is going on and what is only being imagined and all the rest of it. So it's got... And this is kind of what's wrong with the film or where it kind of where it kind of frustrates is that you can tell that there is a certain degree of intelligence behind it, but it's choosing to almost to ignore that. And I found that was an issue in the Kingsman movies as well, is that for every sort of cool, funny, innovative thing that it did, it then uh, put its foot in its mouth. You know, with with some sort of childish uh, comedy or, or or sort of smuttiness or something like that that just really sort of um, took it off piste. Here, uh, there's less of that. There's less gratuitous violence. There's less less gratuitous potty humour. And for that, you know, for that second one in particular, we can be grateful because I've always thought that that was a bit cheap. Um, <laughs> but but it is nevertheless, um, you know, sort of propulsive and chaotic and deliberately all over the place uh trying to wrong foot its protagonist but in do repeatedly but in doing so just completely sort of uh disorientates the the viewer so it, it is kind of like this sort of rampaging juggernaut of a mess of a movie all the time it looks very sort of bright and colorful and polished and, and everything but and it, it obviously draws from the the, the great j genre of the spy thriller, you know, and everything that that, it, that involves. You know, there are obviously lots of James Bond nods, lots of Mission Impossible nods. They're not specific gags, but it's just sort of, you know, draw, drawing inspiration from that genre. And uh, the whole time you can't help but think, yeah, but they did it better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, clearly a lot of money has been thrown at this. Uh, a lot of talent is involved in, in front of and behind the camera. And there are moments, there are sequences, there are set pieces. There is a huge climactic set piece um, in which our two main, main characters, Bryce Dallas Howard and Sam Rockwell, uh, are sort of back to back in a shootout uh, between, you know, invading forces down corridors and there's multicolored smoke everywhere. And it's all to the... Um, <clears throat> To, to the dulcet tones of, uh, I think it's Leona Lewis's run, uh, that, that actually kind of, it kind of really works uh, in and of itself, but it kind of sim simultaneously feels out of place with the rest of the movie, but then so much of the movie feels... Unlike out Clockwork Orange, of course. Else of the movie. Listening to Beethoven while these nutters go around doing people over in bowler hats. Well, yeah, well, that, the juxtaposition has become so old, old hat now that it's no longer really a juxtaposition. No. You know, it's happened so many times. You see it in trailers more than actual sort of final movies these days. But, it, you know, it's so de rigueur now. It's often used in violent scenes, actually, obviously yes. Clockwork Orange. But you've yes. seen it before. You've seen this, you know, the pinnacle of high art music and there's murder going on. That really works as well. Well, <laughs> one, that, one that springs to mind is there's a massive shootout in John Woo's Face Off. Oh, yeah. Uh, to the to the strains of somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's explained. It makes sense. It's kind of diegetic. It kind of works in in the moment. But suffice to say that yes, um, it's it's a huge rampaging mess of a movie. Uh, but it it does have an infectious sense of fun. The biggest problem with it is that it's two and a half hours long. Right. -o. And that is that is just way too much of something. So. Uh, so superficial. 
in terms of what you described on the Tarantino mm. scale, where does it sit? Because your descriptions pretty much match something like Django. Uh, it sits in the child seat. Ah, okay. On the Tarantino <laughs> scale, you know, it's it's inside, it's in plain view of all of Tarantino's work, but it is it is definitely a, a sort of juvenile interpretation of it. Also. Still sounds pretty good though. I think you'll probably like it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, funny, funny. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, one more. One more. One more. Okay, then. Um, well, I'm I'm not going to do one more. I'm going to do two more. What I want to say is, if you're into uh, <laughs> Thai, it's going to be rubbish. Taiwanese. <laughs> If you're into sort of Taiwanese romantic dramas, um, rom-com sort of drama series, um, let's talk about Chu is this new series on Netflix. And I quite liked it, despite myself. It's about a young girl who is moonlighting as a sex advice columnist, basically on YouTube. Right. Uh, meanwhile, you know, she promotes, she, she preaches, uh, that, you know, how it's okay to not get romantically involved and just have, just have sex, just have fun. Uh, you know, and how to have safe sex and all this kind of stuff. But obviously she doesn't practice what she preaches <laughs> and she finds her own personal life far more complicated and her family life is spilling out and everybody in her family, her older sister, her mother, her, young, her older brother, everybody has... Slow down, you're not selling a Ginza knife. I didn't mean you have to stop immediately. <laughs> okay. Suffice to say that everybody's romantic uh, relationships and family relationships are very chaotic and messy, and it's about how they navigate all of those. And that's obviously, you know, it's something that the Taiwanese seem to be drawn to repeatedly. Because there's an, actually, there's an old Edward Yang movie out this week called A Confucian Confusion, mm -hmm. which although, you know, it's, it's 30 years old and it's been remastered, and that's actually out this week. And that's not wholly dissimilar in what it's about. That is also about sort of, uh, you know, women, women in modern society and in the workplace navigating sort of personal lives and, and professional lives and, and relationships all the rest of it how everybody lies to each other and all the you know it's obviously you know it's one of the great themes uh but it was interesting to see these two things which are approached and executed very very differently uh come out at the same time because because they're, they're both from taiwan and they both do kind of the same thing and both do it quite well albeit in very very different ways so let's let's talk about chu on netflix but and then also the old um the 1994 edward yang movie a confucian confusion uh is also back in cinemas uh, so for the one thing I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did. I want to talk about a um, a new animated film on Netflix, I believe, as of later today, called Orion and the Dark. Mm. Uh, written uh, the the big the big uh, hook is that it's written by Charlie Kaufman. It's based on a children's book, but it's adapted by Charlie Kaufman, uh, who is, uh, you know, he wrote. If I'm if I'm correct, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, he then went on to direct Senecta to the Key, New York, and a Mona Lisa, and uh, and such things, adaptation movies like that. Uh, being sorry, not uh, Eternal Sunshine, but being John Malkovich. That was the one. I was oh, that's wonderful. Weird. So he has this very sort of quirky indie, um, angst-ridden sensibility. The, the Ari Aster movie that came out recently called Bo is Afraid was likened by many people, myself included, to a Charlie Kaufman work because mm. it's very much of a piece with that. Okay, so the story of Orion in the Dark is about young Orion is a you know young young boy in school and he is scared of everything. He has anxieties about everything he gets bullied at school uh he doesn't want to he doesn't want to talk to the girl that he likes in case he makes a fool of himself uh he's scared of monsters he's scared of bees he's scared of going on school trips uh he's scared of he's scared of the fact that while he's at school his parents might sell the house and move away without telling him he's literally just a a bag of mess and um 
the, of, of course, the biggest thing he's scared of is the dark. And when he goes to bed one night, he is visited by dark. Okay. Uh, an anthropomorphization <laughs> of an anthropomorphization of dark. So, he says, Look. so there's a word you can't say, and what do you do? You try and say it a few times. Yes, anthropomorphization. <laughs> Come on. Dark in human form. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh, who says, hey, come on, why are you scared of me? Uh, you know, I, I, if you come out with me tonight, I will take you on my rounds, my 24-hour cycle, because mm. obviously Dark can, Dark can never go backwards. So he's like, come with me tonight, and I will show you what I do, and you will find that there's, I, there's nothing to be afraid of. Orion uh, begrudgingly agrees to do this, and so in kind of sort of Dickensian Christmas Carol style, he is taken... He is taken sort of on on a nighttime adventure where he learns he meets lots of the other sort of um, Anthropomorph- sort of uh, <laughs> anthropomorphized <laughs> entities of the night like uh, dreams and sleepiness and um, irrational. There was one called irrational noises or something like that. It's it, and they're all these just little guys who hang around with uh, with the dark. And what he comes to learn, obviously, obviously, you know, he gains a new appreciation of the of the dark and uh, and all the rest of it. But what he comes to learn is that dark himself is kind of battling with some insecurities. Not least that everybody's afraid of him. Nobody likes him, and some people even deny that he exists at all. Yeah. And he, you know, and he's got a chip on his shoulder because everybody likes his uh, his nemesis, as he puts it, Light, who is always chasing him around the world every night. And it's a really it's a really fun kind of idea. I mean, it's, it's Shrek. wholly dissimilar. <laughs> well, it's not wholly dissimilar to what Pixar do a lot with things like sort of Inside Out and Elemental True. and movies like that, you know, where they take these ideas uh, and they, get, they put faces on them, essentially, and, and then they, but they really then dig into them in quite existential ways. And Orion and the Dark certainly works that. I mean, I really liked the animation style. Uh, it's, you know, that's very bright and colourful, except obviously when dealing with dark, when it's deliberately not. It has some really astute observations about why people are afraid of the dark, why, you know, what these anxieties are about. It's framed through a bedtime story that Orion is telling his daughter many, many years later when his daughter is of a similar age to yes. Orion is in the, in the story. And he's explaining to him, you know, this is how I learned to conquer my fear of the dark kind of thing. And they keep going back to that story. And then it, Eventually, the two stories bleed into one another in really interesting ways. So it has a kind of meta quality to it as well, where the story we are being told uh, is is acknowledged within the movie as a story being told to other people, and then the two stories kind of blur. Um, I actually really liked it quite a bit. It sounds good. It sounds great. Fun. Yeah. And it's just smart. It's intelligent. It's fun. It's, uh, you know, like I said, bright and colourful. The characters are really well done. There's some good voices. Orion is voiced by Jacob Tremblay. You know, that young kid from Room and Wonder and what have you, who is now scarily sort of in his teens and looking completely different. Paul Walter Hauser. Yep. Uh, is uh, the voice of Dark. You've obviously got, you've also got Colin Gugino in there. Colin Hanks plays the adult version of Dark. Angela Bassett. Werner Herzog puts in a brilliant cameo i will say no more than that okay uh and so yeah so it's got some real good sort of um credibility to it and it's yeah smart ideas brilliantly executed i think it's one for the whole family and that is on netflix later today it's called orion and the dark it's uh yeah it's it's a little uh, it's a little gem i really liked it give that a go thanks very much quick reminder what we've been talking about as always
Okay, that's Orion and the Dark. That is on Netflix. Also on the Dark is Taiwanese uh, rom-com series called Let's Talk About Chew, which yep. I was quite pleasantly surprised by, uh, and also has some uh, some tangential uh, connections with the old Edward Yang movie, A Confusion Confusion, which is out in cinemas, as is Argyle, the new Matthew Vaughan, uh, Henry, Henry Cavill, Bryce Dallas Howard, action movie, a go-go. Uh, True Detective is in full swing on HBO. Nice one. Take care. Catch you next week. All righty.